Welcome to Cities Unmasked, the U of T School of Cities sponsored podcast about the ways that COVID-19 has highlighted and deepened the contours of urban inequality while amplifying the need for an actualizing tangible action. For each episode in this limited series, we will explore a different lens of cities of inequality in conversation with Lubna Ali, Victoria McCutcheon, Ali Sajid, and Brittany Livingston. This pandemic is just showing us that we've always had the resources and the means to help the communities that are needing the help, you know? It's just who do we prioritize and who do we care about? Recognizing what your community needs and taking it upon yourself in a legal way to, um, you know, transform the space and to make it your own and to take your claim on it. People who have like resource constraints be inadvertently excluded out of green spaces because they recognize that if, if they get sick, they don't have that kind of like access to healthcare. Why is that money going to one big park in an affluent area instead of, you know, in the entire park system? So who are these parks for and and what kind of residents are being prioritized? Today, I, Victoria, will be taking the lead to discuss an issue that is near and dear to my heart, urban feminism. So sit back, relax, get yourself a hot cup of tea, and let's talk about it. It's no secret that gender plays a part in how we interact with our cities influencing our sense of safety, our access to employment, our transit choices, and our daily interactions. The presence of COVID-19 has both heightened and magnified this issue to unimaginable extents. This past March, The Atlantic published an article discussing how the pandemic has sent many couples back to the 50s in a sense, with the closure of many childcare support options that have enabled both parents to take on full-time employment, many couples have had to make decisions about who will take on the additional labor in their home. This often means a transition into breadwinner homemaker relationships as the wealthier partner receives more financial protection than the other, as the wealthier partner who receives more financial protection than the other may find themselves scrambling to keep their household intact. The article goes on to explain how the structure of today's labor market facilitates these gender norms of women acting as caregivers. According to the YWCA in Canada, women are more likely to be essential workers taking on frontline positions such as healthcare workers, social service providers, grocery workers, etc. This often means part-time positions, few sick days, and lifetime earnings that may never recover in the event of a pandemic. As well, 90% of single-parent households are headed by women, meaning that the burden of quarantine preparation, childcare, and financial strain has fallen on the backs of many, with little support and a great deal of fear for the future. The Gendered Impacts of the Outbreak, an article by Wenham Smith and Morgan, discussed how the coronavirus pandemic will likely hit women in middle-low-income countries the hardest. School closures across the globe impact a girl's chances of getting a job and can put her at risk of early pregnancy and becoming a child bride. Foreign domestic workers will also be affected. During the Ebola outbreak of 2013, 70% of small-scale traders in Liberia were women who depended on cross-border communication. With travel restrictions in place, the livelihoods of these women has the potential to be severely impacted. We have also seen that many low-income countries in which reproductive health resources are sparse have experienced additional strain as a result of these resources being used primarily on emergency support. According to the Center for Global Development, in Sierra Leone had 3,600 additional maternal, neonatal, and stillbirth deaths in 2014 as a result of the Ebola outbreak. The conversation surrounding these issues of female inequality has changed dramatically with the COVID-19 outbreak. It is important for us to continue to assess how we can help women globally who are suffering during this time to try and understand the potential consequences of this virus for their future livelihoods and to brainstorm solutions that can help brace the impact of this mass disruption. As the global economy faces an unprecedented recession, there are warnings that women are bearing the brunt of the economic damage. The International Monetary Fund says that three decades of progress towards gender equality is at risk of being wiped out. 
that lawmakers should include specific aid for families and caretakers both during and after this pandemic. In the longer term, the IMF says that governments really need to focus on investing in education, subsidized childcare, and paid parental leave uh, to make sure that the post-pandemic recovery reaches everybody. Before COVID hit us, we actually had a pandemic of gender-based violence. And that might seem like a big word to use, but what it really references is that one in two Canadian women will experience violence or abuse in the course of her life. And that that is uncontrolled at this point, that our prevention efforts have not sort of decreased that rate in decades. So in effect, it meets the definition of pandemic. While we have made progress, this perception that we have that there's no gender equality issue in Canada is certainly dispelled, right? Um, not only 70% have faced some form of inequality over their lives due to stereotypes or blatant discrimination, 81% are still feeling like they're expected to uh, take care of children, do the traditional roles in the household, like cooking and cleaning. Okay, so today for our discussion, we are joined with Sydney Wilson. Uh, Sydney, if you want to give like a brief intro to yourself, what you're studying so that people know about you. Hi, yeah. Uh, so I just graduated with a undergraduate degree in peace, conflict, and justice, history, and human geography. And I'm a School of Cities fellow this year focusing on how COVID-19 has caused a collapsed spatiality of life into the home and what that's meant for the physical spaces of homes and whose work is being prioritized within them. Awesome. So yeah, we thought she would be a great addition to our discussion today. So starting with our first question today, we're talking about some of the structural issues and solutions that we see with urban spaces in the city and how they relate to feminism and just women's safety. So um, what do you guys think are some of the existing structural issues pre-COVID-19 in our urban spaces and workplaces that create additional challenges for women? And how do you think we can address these issues today? So I think first spaces have historically been designed by men for men. Public spaces in particular, I think they were seen as places that women shouldn't be, especially in the 19th and early 20th century, where men were labeled as flaneurs, strollers of the streets. And there was sort of a romanticization of men's exploration of the city. Women on the streets were labeled and sometimes actually criminally charged as prostitutes for the mere act of being on the streets. So I think from a social and also a physical design perspective, the gender permeates everything with regards to physical space. Um, safety obviously comes to mind. There was a um, the largest survey of street harassment to date between Cornell University and a street organization called Hollaback that found a significant majority of women in each of the 22 countries surveyed uh, reported that they understood certain public spaces as unsafe. They chose different forms of transportation or avoided certain areas of the city entirely. So in Canada in particular, 72% of women avoid certain areas of a city and 77% choose different forms of transportation based on their understanding of certain spaces as unsafe. And when we think about like how huge that number is, what that means is that majority of women probably on a daily basis, are actively changing their use of the city based on gendered needs. 
Yeah, I, I really I really think you raise a lot of great points and cities are built to sideline women and women in many ways. Uh, I took a class uh, called Geographies of Feminism uh, last semester. It was a seminar. We talked about a lot of different, I guess, intersections of the built form of the city and how it's built to sideline the interests of women and marginalized people and a great example of that just here in Toronto alone is like the path Um, a lot of you are familiar with it it's an underground system that allows you to get from one building to another Um, and for many people for many women this is not something that's safe or to use at night you know it's um, very hidden it's underground it's dark especially at night it's quite eerie like I myself do not feel very comfortable you know using it especially from walking alone this is a very easy place to you know be met with a very uncomfortable situation like Sydney said you know cities are built by men for men and that is the principal design thinking one thing that pops into my head is just washrooms men's washrooms compared to women's washroom it's a common thing that whenever you go in a line for a woman's washroom it's like oh yeah this again we gotta wait in line for who knows how long and men just go in and out of their washroom because women weren't designing the washroom obviously we need more stalls but they allocate the same space for men's washroom where they can have x amount of urinals and then a women's washroom where you can only have stalls and that's not ever really included in the design process it's really just looking at the design of the space uh, through efficiency of, of space rather than efficiency of use that's a huge issue and right now in Toronto we're having a lot of conversations about uh, access to public washrooms which Toronto does not have a lot of public washrooms which is a huge issue for the unhoused population and it's also a really big issue for women's use of public space. If you think about the fact that women most typically are the ones who are caring for children, children need to use the bathroom more and they often can't wait in the same way that an adult can, which means that a woman going out with young children has to actively think about washroom access in a way that men don't. And it's something that we overall but particularly in Toronto really really don't prioritize. I think like leading off of that we can also talk about for how homeless women have to cope with periods and you know when you don't have the access to all of these public washrooms and stuff that can be a real challenge. It is already but you know you see that becoming coming more popular in the media like people talking about that and how we can kind of support homeless women that have to deal with that and don't always have access to the supplies that they need to get through that. And I think that that's something that's uh, really important for us to discuss. Yeah, I think we can also talk about like safety and safety for trans women and non-binary folks and accessing washrooms in a way that is safe. There's been a recent, I think, maybe in the last couple of years of uh, gender neutral bathrooms. I know that when that first rolled out, there was a little bit of backlash, I think, in the news about that decision because some people came forward and said well that doesn't necessarily make them feel comfortable if they're in a situation where like you know a a cis male I guess I should say goes into the washroom and um, you know might take advantage of that situation but that is why there are also male specific washrooms if that's the case I just think that those are discussions that need to be had like it is important to really think about who you're building for and who you're building against um, and what interests you're serving and what interests are, you know, continue to be silenced. I think one of the other things like talking about that, like, you know, when we're designing spaces, we're we're not totally thinking about all of the issues that could come up 
Uh, we're just thinking about the one use that it's serving. And I think through that, you can kind of talk about alleyways a lot. You know, alleyways can be a great design for, you know, garbage disposal and for like extra storage, like side parking and stuff. But, you know, a lot of these like narrow spaces aren't really lit and be can become, you know, a very dangerous area for women that are trying to pass through. Talk about a little bit more is like how these areas can be better lit, how these areas can be wider, you know, so it can still serve both purposes but uh, do so in a safe way. Safety is such a huge, huge issue for women's use of public space. Uh, But I also think something that's really important for me is focusing on the joyous aspects of public space as well. And this idea, like we're not just trying to make spaces not harmful, but actively good. And one of the projects I've been looking at in my background research for uh, my school of studies project is something called the urban girls movement, which uh, on a very small individual like project scale level gets women from diverse young backgrounds to redesign like individual spaces. So one of the places was a public square. And one of the key aspects that uh, the girls identified for making this square a place they felt safe was specifically gearing it to have multi-generational crowds. Um, So like building in um, the, I can't remember, it was in Sweden, so I can't remember like what the game that um, older people sit around in parks and play, but um, like building in those areas and building in spaces for parents and um, like all different age groups. To, in order to create a sense of community, which really struck me as like such an excellent example of reimagining safety and public space through a community-based lens rather than just increasing surveillance or restrictive measures like fences and cameras. I think also sometimes the focus on like women being unsafe in public space can sort of reinforce women's negative effective experiences of public space as perceiving it as a dangerous place. One of the like biggest dichotomies is that both men and women think of the public space as more dangerous to women than other spaces when statistically the place that women are most likely to face violence, harassment, and abuse is in the home. And so there's this disconnect which both like stops us from addressing an enormous problem of violence in the home and also can misrepresent the public space as more dangerous than it actually is, which then like further reduces women's participation in it. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think that's a great point that you make, though, about how, you know, a lot of what we're doing is, you know, we are trying to make these spaces safe for women, but that's really just making these spaces just adequate. Like, why can't, why do we have to stop there? Why can't we go forth and figure out how we can make the spaces really great for women and, you know, inclusive for everybody that uses them? I think that, you know, safety, like we were kind of talking about in our last episode, you know, it's kind of like it's a basic need and we shouldn't just stop there. Like everyone should be able to feel safe in their city, but then they should also be able to have great experiences in their city as well. I think what's also really um I don't know what the word right word might be maybe upsetting, but that for so many women, there is this sort of common experience of 
some sort of catcalling or sexual assault or harassment or, you know, just feeling uncomfortable. And that's why we're having this discussion. You know, there is this sort of stigma. Don't go out late. Don't stay out late. Don't dress a certain way and don't um, do X, Y, Z or don't drink too much or don't put yourself in situations where you might be uncomfortable. But it just really, you know, upsets me that the onus is on the woman. Why is that the case? So why are we not teaching men to, you know, be responsible for their actions? You know, like, why is it that we have to be on alert? We have to dress a certain way. We have to watch how much alcohol we consume to protect our own safety. And even then, there are people who get, you know, raped in broad daylight and who are not intoxicated and who are not whatever the stigmas and stereotypes are. And these things are still happening. I just think the the discourse needs to be really flipped and the onus needs to be put on the man. It is, at the end of the day, like, that is an action that comes from him. I just, yeah, I just think, like, a lot of people really need to get with the discourse because I know, yes, among my own friend circles, that, that those are the conversations that we have. And it seems like everybody's sort of on the same page that the onus should be on the man. But when you speak with older generations or other groups that are may not be within your circle, the backlash is different. Um, And that's sometimes very shocking and hard to digest or hard to have those conversations to, you know, I guess, educate or make them understand that that is that their perspective, you know, is troublesome. Well, the default is always, you know, teach women not to be assaulted, teach women not to yeah. be raped, but it's never teach men not to rape, not to assault. It's yeah. always the onus on the woman to take responsibility over her own body. But if it's any other sort of crime, like you don't, if someone steals your car, like it's not, oh, you should have learned not to have someone steal your car. Like it's never, there's never the same degree of victim blaming. And for someone to go out and talk about their assault that takes so much strength and so much, you know, immense emotional and mental willpower. So like, I don't understand why they're the ones being seen at fault so often and not having stories believed. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy because it's, it's really just because it's women. If, if men were being raped and assaulted to the same degree as women are, and they are, they do get, you know, assaulted as well. I'm not denying that, but it, I think it would be a much different world we live in. I think victims would be believed much more. Do you know that 98% of victims that come forward uh, are telling the truth? I guess that's called, or I guess survivors is a, a word, a better word to use. But um, that yet still, we have cases like Jeffrey Epstein's and, um, you know, you know, I know <laughs> that's, yeah, I watched that documentary on Netflix and I was just like screaming at the TV. And like just I think last week, um, the news came forward. A lot of stuff has been in the news with regards to uh, Ghislaine, like his wife, um, and um, just a lot of protections that are clearly in place to avoid getting repercussions for their actions. Um, the judge that was placed into the case was shot or I guess her son and her husband were shot in New Jersey at their home. Yeah. Last uh, two weeks prior. So lots so two weeks ago. Um, and 
she was put on the case to deal with, uh, I guess they reopened the case or, or I guess now they're dealing with Gillen's side, his wife's side. Um, and you know, like he has networks, he has connections. That's definitely a threat that those two deaths, it was a sign to say like, watch how you speak on the case. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just think people with a lot of money and power, it's a, it's a power dynamic and a power play. Okay. So then the other thing that we wanted to talk about today is kind of, you know, just amid everything that's going on with the Black Lives Matter movement, um, talking about intersections of feminism and how we can better support BIPOC women who are being affected by COVID-19. Um, so some things to discuss, uh, you know, what does support look like as a white person? How do we use our privilege to support others? Um, and then just kind of talking about the intersections of rich and poor who has access to better resources for mental health. Um, yeah. So if there's anything that you'd like to discuss with that. Yeah, I think, again, historically, movements around women in space have been really, really white focused. Um, so the entire, I think a fairly common idea that I certainly learned about in initial geography classes and it sort of permeated the um, general social sphere is the idea of um, homes as like women being stuck in their homes and women being uh, stuck in the suburbs and the idea that like suburbs were created to separate work and home and to further like remove women from public spaces in cities and the workforce, et cetera. And all of that is true, but it's also a very like white middle-class perspective. And then like someone like Bell Hooks has this incredible essay on the home place and the fact that racialized women, black women were always working outside the home. They were working in the homes of these white women in the suburbs. And that for them, actually, the home is a site of resistance, a site of escape from a racist city. And that like having, having the chance to create what she calls a, a home place is a act of resistance and subversion. And not having the time or the energy to do that because you're so exhausted from working and the daily realities of life, et cetera, is one of the like racist impacts of the system that we have created. And really, so like really thinking, especially in when we're talking about space and we're talking about the field of geography, like how dominated even feminist geography has been with um, white women and white women's perspectives and needs. So I think about that a lot. Um, and Jay Pitter, uh, who's an incredible urbanist, city planner. Uh, she's a Black woman from Scarborough and I think is a distinguished visitor in planning at U of T right now. Uh, she has this great question about um, asking like a look around the room, who is not here and why? And like that's super powerful. But for me, I've also started asking like, why am I in this room? what is my place in this room? 
and why, because I am a white woman. I'm a white woman with a university degree who's from downtown Toronto. So like I have all of these privileges and like what rooms does that put me in that other women don't get into? Yeah, I think that's a really great uh, point that you make, especially about what uh, Jay Pitter says. Um, uh, it's also interesting to see the perspectives of uh, different people based on their experiences. And I often wonder, like, I don't know, for me personally, when I walk into a room, that is the question that I ask. The question that Jay Peter said, who is here and who isn't? And I often like reflect on my own positionality. Like, like how did I get to this position? And like, why am I the only brown girl in the room of white faces? You know? Um, and I'm always like, that's the first thing I noticed no matter where I am. And I've kind of, it's, it's kind of always been a very active observation of mine. Like since I was a kid, you know, we would go on uh, a lot of family road trips to a lot of like remote towns or areas in like Ontario, just, you know, weekend trips. And, you know, those were my first encounters of realizing that I am not white and that I look different and that my family is different and that I'm not necessarily always accepted in these spaces. Um, and so I'm just curious to like flip the question if that's, uh, if that's okay. Like, have you, how do you, like when you go into a room, do you notice that like, oh, there's only one black girl here or there's only one brown girl or like, you know, or one indigenous girl? Like, is that something that comes up like as an active observation for you or as a white woman? Or is that not really something that you like notice right away? It is absolutely something I notice. I think because I, I have started making a point of noticing that when I was 15 years old, I didn't walk into a room and notice that. Um, so it is, and it's something that I think about and I start thinking about like, why, why is there only one person of color in this room? But it doesn't, it doesn't have like the same impact as the first time that I was the only white person in a room. And actually, so I do a lot of work with the NDP and after, uh, Jagmeet Singh got elected, I was at convention and a huge problem with the NDP has been like how white it is. And one of the like incredible things about uh, the Singh's run for leadership, the win was how many racialized people um, got involved uh, and how many Sikh people got involved and convention. There was like, it was predominantly or approaching predominantly, especially in the younger spaces, um, racialized people and like Southeast Asian people specifically. And that really had an impact on like the culture of the rooms, the cultural references, especially having leadership in the room who were Sikh and who were Southeast Asian and not immediately knowing the cultural references, not feeling comfortable with the like, social norms was like such a powerful experience of how everyday society is predominantly white people with white people norms and white people cultural references that just like makes it so easy and seamless for me to interact in. Um, so in a normal room, I notice it, but it doesn't have that same sort of effective experience for me because I am white. 
where I grew up, it was very white. Um, so it wasn't really something I noticed because I just saw myself kind of reflected back kind of in every room I was in. And then I remember actually when I was going to apply for U of T, I toured the Scarborough campus because I initially was looking at doing global development studies, which I did at Queens. And then I transferred to to U of T to do urban studies. Um, And I remember kind of for one of the first times in my life, like I was the minority, like there wasn't many white people at the Scarborough campus when I was there. Um, And I felt very uncomfortable. I felt very out of place. I'm someone that gets a lot of social anxiety from being in places where I don't feel I belong, like I belong and I feel like I stand out. So for me, that definitely heightened the experience of discomfort. Um, so it's it's an immense privilege that I can sort of circumvent that space because there was other opportunities for me. But it's it's it is something that I do feel, you know guilt for that I you know like that's the only kind of experience I've had and I you know it was so uncomfortable I I left and it's 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 something that I can choose to leave so it's it's yeah it's a very strange dichotomy to to live in for sure wow I really appreciated you sharing that like that like it's very real you know like like I wasn't surprised by your answer because I'm sure that when you flip the script then that would be the experience but it's interesting how you described it and how you spoke about it and you like owned it you know which a lot of people like they grapple with the white guilt but uh there's also some like you know shame about talking about the white guilt because they don't want um I think it's also like really interesting I hope I'm not talking too much but the um <laughs> Uh, when Sydney was talking about uh, uh, her experience with Jagmeet and meeting him, um, it reminded me of when I met I met Jagmeet Singh as well when I was in Ottawa. I was selected to sit actually. Um, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with the Daughters of the Vote program. Um, so I was selected to sit uh, in Parliament with 337 other women. So each of them took the seat of their MP all Canada wide, and I was representing my um, my local constituency Ajax. So I sat in. Uh, MP Mark Holland's seat and um, it was a one-week event that was dedicated to you know uh, the intersections different women women who would take a seat in parliament but they were looking for intersections of different women so they wanted black women they wanted indigenous women Muslim women trans women uh, women who are disabled Uh, like pretty much as many intersections as you can think about they were looking for that they wanted to fill like a diversity quota in 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 many ways was the backlash with the event and um for many people who were um, racialized, black, person of color, indigenous, that attended the event, uh, a lot of the delegates had experiences that were quite traumatic for them, as they stated. Um, we had a healing circle um, one evening uh, uh, separately that was held. And, you know, a lot of things came forward about experiences with white delegates and white feminism that, um, that, I don't think, uh, you know, women on the other side, white women realize that they were, you know, doing. Um, And it's just more so um, how do you have a discussion about feminism that is intersectional? You know, it's not just, you know, women who, you know, love women or women who treat women with respect or women who support women, I guess is the statement. It's uh, 
so much more than that and realizing that each different experience has a different barrier attached to that. I think for me, one of one of the reasons why I find statements like we are all racist or like we are all misogynistic, like so powerful is because it forces me to really sit and think and analyze like the things that I do and the things that I think and look for those. And like, since um, George Floyd's murder, I have been reading so much more partially because I have more time because I graduated and partially because it's been such so much more prevalent than it's already too prevalent um too prevalent racism but one of the like most powerful things has been like finding those internalized things of like oh like I am uncomfortable about talking about racism with my racialized friends, my black friends specifically, because I'm scared about offending them. And I have this like idea that like somehow that they, <laughs> they're not aware in every moment that that's impacting them. And that if I bring it up, it will like all of a sudden materialize and like having that moment of like, wow, that is so stupid. And that's like an example of how my own privilege of not being able, like not not needing to think about it has impacted the way that I talk about it with people in my life. And so like those, those moments of figuring out how I am part of the problem have been like extremely powerful. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. I think I've kind of had like a similar experience. I grew up in a, like a really small, very white town. Um, that's just like what, your typical town that you think of when you think of just like this, like hick farmer town where everyone's kind of just, you know. Um, so, you know, like I really wanted to like, I wanted to come to U of T because I wanted to be out of that. I wanted to be like exposed to more things. And, um, you know, I think that that coming there and being surrounded by so much diversity, so many different people who've had so many different experiences has really helped me kind of break away from that. And, you know, growing up somewhere like that, you kind of, um, you know, you're aware of these issues happening, but you're surrounded by so many people who don't think that it's a big deal. You know, coming some coming somewhere like U of T and you have so many people that are so passionate about these issues and stuff and just you know, learning about how the, all these different ways that you can kind of educate yourself and that you can kind of, um, you know, learn to be more of an advocate and stuff has just been really awesome for me. And yeah, I just think, I just think that's a lot of people, I think the city in general, I think people, like if you're from a small town, you need to at least live in the city for like a little bit so you can kind of break away from that because when you're in this like tiny, these like isolating spaces, it's hard for you to kind of uh, realize that there are other perspectives and issues outside of your bubble. There are studies that show that um, people who have friends or family who are, I guess, racialized, I guess white people who have friends and family who are racialized or coworkers or anybody in their life who is token brown friend, as horrible as that sounds, 
that they are less inclined to be racist or homophobic or transphobic or whatever they, you know, the intersection may be. So exposure really does have a positive effect on those implicit biases. I think there was like a study of a Muslim family that was experiencing Islamophobia in the uh, U.S., and they invited the person who who made the comment to their home for dinner. Maybe the article was glorified, but the article stated that the person's perspective completely changed after having that interaction with them. And this is not to say that, you know, people should be, like people of color have to do this burden. This is the, like this is labor at the end of the day. And this is the emotional labor that sometimes puts you in unsafe situations. Like who knows if that person that you invite into your home for dinner has very malicious intentions. I just think that, to Victoria's point, that exposure really makes a very big difference. But I think also the idea of people having kind of like a token racialized friend kind of at least, you know, maybe hopefully not now, but previously it's really given people an out of the conversation. Even people of color can be racist. Like it's it's this internalized thing that people, when you grow up to be socialized in this system, it it latches onto you and it's insidious and you might not be aware of it, but it's there. It's there and it can be implicit as well. I think diversity can sometimes actually be really misleading. I grew up Parkdale, which is it's the largest Tibetan community outside of Asia. My high school, 40% of people had been in Canada five years or less. There were like it was a predominantly racialized school and I've lived in downtown Toronto my entire life. And so like, I was very, I am very used to not just being around white people, having like people from around the globe around me, but that doesn't mean that I am anti-racist. That doesn't mean that these structures that we're all living under aren't still extremely racist. And I think that's where like, the being at a convention that was both being led by and like had predominantly racialized people there in the younger the younger cohorts um was such an experience because it wasn't just like add women in stir add like racialized people in stir it was actual like the leadership is reflective of that and that's making noticeable cultural shifts away from white capitalist settlerism. Yeah, I think um, going off of that, like white capitalist sort of way of operating, and it is the status quo, like we can extend that even into like international development work. And it's important to talk about like Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and their forced sterilization of women, especially women in India, a lot of nonprofit work and work that is for the greater good and is for, you know, helping and has its own implicit biases that come with it. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, they had a partnership with the prime minister of India to basically incentivize doctors to do mass sterilization on women and they incentivize them and essentially coerce them to adhere to these procedures in exchange for a small sum of money, maybe under $25. You know, you want to help women, but why are you policing women's bodies? And who, like, who controls the population? Why is it that women our India's population needs to be controlled in the first place. There's also this still the same idea of control added to that. I took a class on uh, global warming 
And one of the things that we talked about quite a bit was essentially the the eco-fascism of global warming movements that basically like once again put the work on global southern countries of like, oh no, you can't develop and you can't develop in the dirty ways that all the global northern countries did because we have this global warming crisis and like, yes, we do have this global warming crisis and yes, we probably like do need to significantly change the way that we're developing countries, but these like enormous racism involved in global northern countries making these decisions and once again putting the burdens on global southern countries for sterilization which is like a historic problem as well that has happened in to indigenous women in Canada in Australia in Peru yeah um I think there's also this like notion like about poor women in the global south and how they have a capacity for labor which is like almost infinitely elastic Think about the fast fashion industry or just a lot of companies now who are outsourcing labor. You know, a lot of corporations have come under backlash for their poor working conditions for garment factory workers, especially Bangladeshi women who work under poor conditions with poor pay and extraneous hours a day. Capitalism values or devalues the like women's bodies. And now it's now at a global scale. We're 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 complicit with that with our purchasing choices. It's interesting, too, even looking at kind of the relationship of dependency um, with the the global north and the global south, like women here that consume and men, but but women that consume um, fast fashion here, um, you know, we're depending on that devaluation of labor of, of women working in poor working conditions in the global south. And I think it's something that people want to address and want to improve but you know fast fashion sales haven't reduced at all people are still consuming clothes like they don't have you know so many clothes in their wardrobe right now it's consumerism mentality it's it's a conversation that people like bring up but i feel like as a broad society it hasn't really changed any behavioral habits because ultimately people don't want to pay more than they've been used to paying but the price that they're paying has never been the true price because the labor has been devalued from the beginning it's always been about having the largest margins possible but the clothing has always been worth way more than it's been sold at i think also what's interesting is in like academia even i know we're talking about this like relationship between women to women but specifically with perhaps white women to women uh, racialized women and and how those balances differ in terms of feminism. I saw a tweet this morning actually about how many women are in white women are in academia that are employing racialized nannies to look after their kids as they write their papers about feminism, racism, and all the other isms. And I just think it's really important to reflect on that or like how many white women are helping, you know, racialized women in terms of networking, getting opportunities, getting jobs, opening up doors for them. I think those like ideas really need to translate into many other spheres to sort of provide solutions. I'm not sure what your own take is on that. I think you can also talk about this, you know, like amid the pandemic, I had this article here that was 
from uh, the Canadian Research Network for Care in the Community, kind of talking about how women make up 96% of the PSWs that are active right now. Actually, this was out of 2010. Uh, so 42% identified as racialized, which is nearly double the percentage of racialized people in the province. So, you know, you do see a large percentage of racialized women who are working as PSWs in nursing homes specifically. And, you know, that's obviously a big zone for uh, COVID. So it's interesting to see like who is on the front lines during this pandemic and who is in these positions that are most at risk for getting the virus. I think that's such a great point. So when when the military first went into long-term care homes several months ago and a few, like five or six soldiers ended up contracting COVID. And all of a sudden, there were emergency cabinet meetings, and it was a national news story. And I remember listening to the radio, to a mainstream radio news program, talking about this crisis that we were now having, and how government was going to be doing everything it could to be protecting these workers, etc, etc. And I just, I thought it was such an example of the idea of like necropolitics um, and whose lives are valuable and whose are not. Because the reality is long-term care home workers, personal support workers who are overwhelmingly women, disproportionately racialized, disproportionately new immigrants, have been raising the alarm about Ontario long-term care homes for over a decade. And they had been being as loud as they possibly could throughout the entirety of COVID. The first person to die in Ontario was a long-term care home worker. And it wasn't until we had military members, which is a masculinized white institution that we as a society value, that their lives were on the line and that they were the ones saying, oh, there's a problem here, that all of a sudden we started to listen. I think that's so true. And even in New York, in the Bronx, it was one of the hardest hit states. I think now they've their numbers are not as bad compared to like Florida's. But the Bronx specifically is a predominantly racialized community in New York. And they had the highest number of cases for COVID-19 in all of the US. And I don't think that that's just a mere coincidence at all. It's interesting because I find like um, where you're saying like with long term care and I find just like um, like caretakers in general, there's just kind of this um, this attitude around it when it's women that it's just kind of like, you know, you just figure it out and that they don't need as much support as like other jobs because, you know, that they're women and that's kind of what's expected of them. We saw I saw a lot of that myself a couple of years ago. My grandma had cancer and uh, we were doing a lot of like the home care from home and my mom was taking a lot of the brunt of that and trying to get other people in to kind of help out with that kind of work. It was like nearly impossible. You know, a lot of it, they just kind of, you just kind of get it thrown on you. And it's just kind of like, you know, figure it out yourself. And this is like your family and you can just take care of them and you don't really need any extra assistance to do that. And I find you see that a lot with, with people that have family members with cancer, this attitude that you just have to deal with it. Our societal and institutional and political systems were designed when heterosexual nuclear families was our idea of society with middle and upper class white families having men work outside the home and women take care of the home, often with the help of domestic workers. 
And in poor and racialized families, men worked and women were expected to somehow do both. And that is intrinsic to like the very foundations of our political systems, our welfare systems, the delineation of powers between the levels of government. Like provincially, it's predominantly like women issues that are predominantly affected by women. So like healthcare, education, et cetera. Whereas on the federal level, it's more like security, broader economics, things that are more male dominated. And so like all of this stuff is intrinsic to the way that we run our governmental institutions and our society. And I think that those mechanisms will always be default pushing us back towards society in that image. So just assuming that women are going to take on those caring roles and devaluing those caring roles is not real work. And I think we like what we're seeing with COVID-19 is our institutions working at lightning speed, making these like usually slow processes of like pushing women back into the home by not making care work valued, not providing the support for the stuff that we know happens. Family members get sick. Children need to be taken care of. The 40 hour work week was designed when one person was working outside of the home. When women moved into working 40 hours a week, all of a sudden they were expected to both do that and do everything at home. And like while the needle is moving on women's participation in the workforce and rising in the workforce, the needle is not moving on men doing more at home. And like that, that is the biggest glass ceiling. Women cannot do more at work if they're still expected to do what is more than a full-time job at home. And so I think as we're thinking about like what governments can do to assist women and families right now while still staying safe from COVID and thinking about like what's going to happen with schools and whatnot, we really need to think about how our entire system is designed with this assumption that like all of that domestic work isn't real work and that it's just going to get done somehow. I was talking about that a little bit in the intro, especially with a lot of babysitters and caretakers and stuff aren't accessible or weren't accessible anymore at the beginning of the virus and everything. So you have the parents that are kind of now becoming the teachers at home because the kids can't go to school and they need help with their homework. And they're becoming the caretakers because they have to take care of the kid during the day. And suddenly these families are faced with, okay, who's going to do what during the work week when we both have stuff to do. And you kind of see like how that kind of plays out, who gets to go and do the work and have fun and who gets stuck um, taking care of the kid. And obviously they both enjoy that, but it kind of, it's interesting to see like how that plays out in different families of who gets the brunt of the responsibilities and who gets to go live the rest of their life, you know? There was an interesting podcast I was listening to a couple of days ago about women in business that had a lot of difficulty taking time off from their companies and kind of reworking their schedules to pick up children from childcare, drop them off at school, that sort of thing. So instead of trying to navigate that system because they found that it was negatively impacting their career trajectories, they weren't seen as, as focused on their careers and they weren't as dedicated as male employees because they had different responsibilities. 
And so they went off and started their own companies where it's all female employees and their hours are flexible. And they also, you know, more follow school schedules and do things as you need to. I think it's an interesting idea instead of maybe trying to fit in a system that was never designed for you and is never really meant to function for your needs to instead build your own, one that's flexible, one that's suitable for you, and one that you have the power to create. And, you know, some countries are starting, I I think it's Sweden has just moved to the 30-hour work week. And I don't think it's a coincidence that um, Sweden is the most gender equal country in the world, or that they've started taking a gendered lens to as many policies as you could think of. It's also the place where they're doing feminist snow plowing, because they actually they took a gendered lens to how we snow plow our cities and realized that the people disproportionately being impacted by the snowplow routes and the prioritization of streets were women and women with children. And I think that just like is an, such an excellent example of all the inequities that we will find when we start applying gendered lenses, racialized lenses, immigration lenses to all of the government policies and programs that we have now. I just actually just pulled up the gender inequality index. I'm looking at the 2018 statistics here, and they define countries as gender equal based on maternal mortality ratio, adolescent birth ratio, share of seats in parliament, population with at least some secondary education, and then labor force participation rate of uh, ages 15 or older. Great measures to think about when it comes to how do we define quality in different ways. I also wonder about who makes up these markers and how does this uh, look for different societies? Perhaps this culturally in a different country, in that context, maybe these are not the best markers for, for measuring inequality. Equality is defined differently according to what culture or what religion you're from. And those perspectives change accordingly. And so this might be a very Western definition of or ranking or in or, you know, system that ranks inequality um, that may not apply to other cultures, for example. I think we should always be wary of exporting policies from countries to other places, uh, even even within Western countries. My undergraduate thesis was on uh, sex work and evaluating uh, sex work models. And the big one of the biggest models that Canada actually adopted was the Swedish model, the Nordic model of uh, sex work. And the thing is, is it really doesn't take into consideration Indigenous sex workers. And in Canada, in street sex work, Indigenous women make up over 50% of street sex workers. When you consider the fact that they're 2.5 to 3% of the population from the census, at least, they're probably higher than that in reality. But 2.5 to 3% to over 50% is an enormous difference. And so the thing about just importing a model that doesn't address that issue is that in Canada, our, the way that we handle sex work regulation and sex work uh, governance does not consider the hugely disproportionate number of Indigenous women, as well as a host of other problems with the Nordic model. 
most chiefly being that it has not incorporated or like listened to sex work activists themselves, which again is like another problem if you're exporting it. Yeah, I think looking at the context is always very important. And, you know, using these measures to, to, to somewhat guide policy, but looking at, you know, qualitative anecdotal work as well, because it doesn't necessarily give the full picture. Yeah, it's so important to ask and talk to the subject that you're researching. I find, and that's such like, why does that even need to be said? But like, there's so much research that's that's out there that they're not even really consulting as much as they should be the subject and you're going off of just, you know, stats and uh, just the numbers themselves. And even considering co-design processes instead of sort of, you know, ad hoc community engagement where you're kind of just verifying that it would be maybe suitable for them, but you already have the idea, you know, going from the beginning to the community and, and the people that you're trying to serve and then coming up with a solution collaboratively and really giving them the power to co-create. All right, so I think we had some great discussion today. If you were interested in the topic of racial inequality that we were discussing, you can stay tuned for our episode on The Racist City. Um, If you're interested in some of the stuff we were talking about, about health and COVID-19, you can check out The Isolating City. Any of the topics that came out in articles, statistics that we were talking about specifically are going to be linked below this episode. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us, Sydney. Thank you for having me. I had a wonderful time. Yep. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Cities Unmasked with Lumna Ali, Victoria McCutcheon, Ali Sajid, and Brittany Livingston. If you like our show and want to know more, please check out our Instagram page at Cities Unmasked. Or leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify. A special thank you goes out to the University of Toronto School of Cities.